0: was 2010, and this is a beautiful location. How would you like to be there? Yes. Yeah, amen. It's great. Uh, this is Haiti. It's a beautiful location. A lot of tourists go there, and they enjoy it. Uh, this was 2010 in January, and uh, it looks kind of like fun. I, I like ziplining myself, but that's, that's like the world's longest zipline right there, about a mile long, and uh, it's a land of a paradox of mixtures because there is also uh, large slum dwellings. You can see off in the distance, there's a the cruise ship's but then, then there's the places where people can barely exist. Um, these structures aren't built very well because there's not a lot of building codes. And so as people have money, they'll buy some blocks and cement and they'll just put it together. Well, it had been about 200 years before a major event happened in January 12, 2010. Darlene was pretty excited, Darlene Etienne. She was pretty excited. She was leaving her parents' place, and she was going to go to school in Port-au-Prince, the capital, and she was going to stay with her aunt and her uncle. And so she was moved out of the house, and she had moved in with her aunt and uncle. And on January 12, 2010, her aunt and her uncle were gone. She was there in the house alone and an earthquake. This is the capital before. This is the capital after. It was a 7.0 on the Richter scale of magnitude, which isn't the highest, but it's pretty significant. What was significant about this earthquake is it happened so close to the capital. It was only, the epicenter was 10 miles away from the capital, and it was very shallow. Some earthquakes happened hundreds of miles below the surface, but this one happened within six miles of the surface. And so the intensity of this earthquake was catastrophic, especially considering the dwellings that were here. If you'll allow me just 40 seconds, you'll see the first video that was shot of this earthquake. see high-rises just flat as a pancake, whole housing developments just smashed. They estimate 230,000 people perished because of this earthquake. That's the size of Lincoln, Nebraska. A whole entire city gone. The world initiated a massive rescue effort on that day. They brought in ships and helicopters and rescue teams They worked dramatically with these huge planes trying to alleviate suffering wherever they could. They dropped things out of planes. They did massive search and rescue efforts. Uh, They were working in very dangerous locations, going back in holes, trying to find everyone they possibly could. And then there's this dwelling. Darlene was in this dwelling. Everyone was gone. She wasn't even actually supposed to be home that day. They thought she was somewhere else. And she kept hearing people screaming for help and rescuers rescuing them and she kept wondering who's going to rescue me and when anyone would come near she would cry out she waited one day, she waited two days, she waited three days, she waited eight days no one came on day 10 she was still in this hole and she would cry out for help and no one would respond they didn't realize she was there On day 10, the United Nations called off search and rescue. They said, there's no one alive at this point. It's not even worth looking. Day 12, she's still alive. Day 13, she's still alive. Day 14, she's still alive. Day 15, she's still alive. I'd like you to consider this passage with me. As we open God's word this evening, I'd like to ask God's presence to be here with us again. Father in heaven, as we contemplate a serious subject, one with eternal consequences, one that we're all touched by, pain and suffering. Lord, this isn't a a simple topic, nor is it one we should just easily dismiss, because your very character is called into question over this issue. As we reflect on the scripture this evening, Lord, help us to understand it aright. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a number of scriptures I'm going through this evening. If you have a pad of paper or your phone, you're welcome to follow along and take notes of the, of the scriptures that we're using. I'll be highlighting the scriptures up here on the screen. Hopefully you can see them decently back there. Can you see them in the back? Yeah, somewhat between heads. Okay, sorry, I wish it could be a little higher, but the ceiling limits us here. Okay, in John, 1 John 4, verse 16, this scripture highlights an aspect of God's character. And we have known and believed The love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. This scripture clearly states that God is love. He is love. Now God is loving. He is merciful. He is gentle. But this states that his very nature, he is love. That's his nature. So when we see God do things, it's an expression of who he is. It's an expression of love. When we see his law, it's a law of love. When we see his actions towards humanity, it's, it's actions of love. Now, I have kids. My kids don't always think my actions are loving. But if I prevent them from doing something that would harm them, is that a loving act? Yeah. Now, they may not realize it at the moment. Like, dad, dad, come on, please. and No, you cannot do this because I love you. My daughter's grinning from ear to ear. None of you know who it is, but if you see a big smile in the back, that's her. God, God is love. Now, it's one thing to say you're love. I'm love. How do you know? Just words don't make that so. It takes demonstration. God is love. So we're going to look at the very beginning of God's interaction with humanity on this earth and see what it has to say about this planet. This is in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 10. God created the world and on the second day he called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. It was what? It was good. I mean if God says something's good it must be good. My wife says tomatoes are good. I hate tomatoes (laughs) but if God says it's good, it must be really so. He said it was good. He said it was good every single, he, six times he said it was good. And then on the sixth day, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. It was good six times, then very good. Now, I'm going to be quiet for just a moment, and I want you to reflect on the screen. God said it was very good. When I look around at this world, oh yeah, there's good things, sure. Ziplining, cruise ships. But when you really start looking, you put your glasses on, and you start looking, this world isn't so good. We've all suffered. We've all experienced loss and pain. Why? Why is that here? There are those that wonder, If God is good, why is there so much suffering? If God is love, why does he allow this? As any parent would certainly do, they would stop all the suffering to the children if they could. If God is love, why doesn't he stop it already? The Bible has an answer that satisfies me. I'd like to share that with you. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12 and verse 7, that pain and suffering didn't start here. The scripture tells us that there was war in heaven. It began there. It didn't begin here. There was a war in heaven. Ezekiel tells us a little about this. This is Ezekiel 28. He gives us a little picture into how this war came to be. There's not a lot in scripture about this war in heaven, but there's enough to give us an insight into it. And this describes a being who was in the presence of God. You were an anointed cherub who covers. A cherub is an angel, a high, exalted angel. A cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. This is describing the presence of God. God is a a consuming fire. This anointed cherub covered the presence of God. He stood in the very presence of the Most High. And God says about this cherub, this high being, you were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. Perfect. Can you imagine? Like when I look at my hands, I'm not perfect, this one's twisted a little bit. This was perfect, this being. There was nothing evil. There was nothing wicked about this being. He was perfect until something changed within this cherub, till iniquity was found in you. Pain and suffering, evilness started somewhere. It didn't start in the heart of God. God did not create evil. God created a perfect being who had the ability to change. That's a powerful point. God created a a being who was perfect, but he gave him this ability to change from being perfect to having iniquity in his heart. Your heart, it says of this being, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. His heart was lifted up. It was corrupted. This is where evil begins. It begins in the heart. When we see others do wickedness, when we're tempted to do wickedness, it, it originates in our heart. And that's where it started with him. His heart was lifted up because of his beauty, for the sake of your slen- splendor. Not slender. Maybe he was a, a slender splendor. I don't know. But uh, at, at some point, this, this incredible being was, was maybe walking by one of the celestial pools. And he just happened to notice the angle of his jaw. And he thought, wow, that's really nice. And then, and then maybe somewhere else he just saw... A muscle flex. Oh, yeah, yeah, look at that. I got a bigger one than all the angels. Look at that, you know? Uh, I don't know how it happened, but somehow he began to, within his own heart, feel I'm oh, something special. You know, wickedness begins, evil begins, with when we begin to cherish things for ourselves that we don't deserve. All glory and honor is due to God, God is love. And he's the essence of love. And when we begin to love ourselves, our love turns inward when God's love is outward. God gave, and we'll highlight that more later. But this individual began to focus inward. He began to take. Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not God, though you set your heart as the heart of God. So his heart was lifted up, and you have said. So it wasn't something he kept within, this inward focus, this self-focus. This is something he began to say, and you have said. So what did he say? And you have said, I am a God. Now notice he said, I am a God. He didn't say, I am the God. He wasn't really wanting to replace God. He just somehow felt he was equal with God. Like, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he felt like he could be the additional cherub. Like, I'm better than all these. God is better than all these. Why wouldn't I also be one of the gods? He wanted to be right there. He felt it was his right. And he desired to sit in the seat of God. And there was war in heaven. So how do you imagine a heavenly war is? I mean, I'm sure all of you have seen these Star Trek movies, and they have their sort of light, and they're fighting through the sky, I mean, possibly, something like that. But the scripture paints a little different picture. Most wars that we see today begin with this element, the element of lies. And he, Satan, referring to that cherub, his name changed, it used to be Lucifer, it became Satan when he fell, and he, Satan, is a liar, and the father of lies. Every lie originated with this intelligent being. He used this as a mechanism of warfare against God. So God was sharing truth and Satan was arguing with lies. And the Bible tells us that he's the deceiver of the whole world. He's pretty effective. Most people think of Satan as some creature that's kind of goofy. He's got a tail with a point on the end, and he's got a pitchfork, and you can trick him at times. Um, this one has deceived the entire world. He's a being beyond our imagination. Uh, incredible. So, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels. Michael is another name for Jesus. If you want to ask me about that later, I'm happy to explain that to you. But Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought fought also with his angels. And the scripture tells us some good news. He was defeated. He was defeated, and there was no longer any place in heaven for him. He was cast out. So the great dragon was cast out. We're in Revelation 12, 8 and 9. He was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was cast out to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So he is cast out where? The scripture says to the earth. Now something's interesting. He wasn't cast out by himself. The scriptures tells us and his angels were cast out with him. Now the Bible clearly states that God created all things through Jesus Christ. So these angels and even the devil himself, well, Lucifer, they were all created by God. How did these become Satan's angels? What well, we just saw. He lied and he deceived. He lied and he deceived. The scripture says in Revelation 12, I think it's verse 3, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and had cast them to the earth. In the beginning of Revelation, Revelation 1, the scripture tells us that the stars are a symbol of his angels. So when it's referring to here the dragon's tail, it's symbolic of Satan. He was the dragon, and he drew a third part of the angels in heaven. Now, I don't know how many angels are in heaven, but there must be a lot. And he took a third of them with him. He must be pretty convincing to convince an angel that his lies were true and God was false. And did cast them to the earth. So the scripture tells us that we this little world have been made a spectacle to the whole universe to angels as well as to human beings. How are we a spectacle? How did this happen and when did it happen? Well, we're told again in Revelation 12, the great dragon, called the devil and Satan, he also has another name. Anybody guess what his other name is? Dra- dragon. Yeah, the great dragon. He's called the devil and Satan. He's got another name. Enterprise. Enterprise. <laughs> the well, right here in this text, it tells us the serpent of old. The dragon, Satan, the devil is called the serpent of old. Now, if you go back to, to Matthew and further back into Daniel and further back into Psalms and further back into First Kings, all the way to the very oldest book in the Bible, Genesis, it just so happens to talk about a serpent that was spoken through by a devious being. Now, I personally believe that that serpent was a real serpent that Satan spoke through. Now, is it possible for angels to speak through creatures? I mean, yeah, we see in the story of Baal, he talked to a donkey, right? Uh, So Satan was speaking through this serpent to Eve. Now, before we pull apart that story a little bit, we have to look at the, the framework just before that story happens when they are at the tree. Genesis two eight, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So he created Adam from the dirt of the ground, put him together, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam came alive. I mean, it must have been exciting for God. Like he spoke everything in existence, but this was the one he formed. And Adam came alive, and Adam was like, Wow, it's a beautiful world. And so God says, well, just wait. I have another surprise for you. You need to go name all the animals. Oh, yeah, yeah. Elephant, Mrs. Elephant. Uh, giraffe, Mrs. Giraffe. Uh, dog, Mrs. Dog. Uh, horse, Mrs. Horse. And hey, God, I'm at, where's the other Mrs.? You know, don't worry. Just take a little nap. And when you wake up, I have a surprise for you. And God created the highest thing in creation, his wife. Some of you met my wife and you came in. She's the highest thing in the Anderson house. Uh, Yeah, so on the way out, say hi to Mrs. Anderson, blonde lady. Um, I think Eve would have blushed to have been in her presence, but you know, Adam was pretty excited about Eve. And so, uh, so God gave Adam everything he needed. But, but uh, okay, so he put him in the garden, he, he, he formed him and gave him, okay, and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So how many trees did he give them? Every tree. I mean, just try to think of a tree he didn't make. Oh, there's pineapple tree. Oh, they don't have pineapple trees. They grow on the ground. But there's mango trees and apple trees and, oh, peach trees and praise the Lord, there's no tomato trees. But every tree, there was nothing lacking. They could get every fruit they wanted. But God added something else to this garden. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was two special trees. One tree, if they ate from this fruit, they would continue to live on forever and ever. There was another tree God said, "Uh uh-uh, you can't eat from this tree. Now God, as the creator... Do you think it's fair and reasonable of him to say, you know, there's something you can't have? I mean, I think it's reasonable. In my home, there's some things the children can't have. You know, as a United States citizen, there's some things I can't have. I I can't go to Fort Knox and take all the gold. There's some things we can't have. It's okay if our sovereign God, the rule of the universe, says, says, you know what, you can't have this. And he told them that. But what's interesting is the tree was where they could access it. I find this fascinating. This is a powerful point about what we spoke about earlier, God is love. God gave them a choice. You can eat from this tree or not. He gave them the ability to choose to serve him or not. God gives us free moral choice. Now this is hard for some religionists. They say, well, if God knows the future and he knows what I'm going to do, then. It's already decided. I, you know, I'm just It's just going to happen. But you misunderstand the character of God. For God to be loving, he has to hold these things apart. He has to say, I know the future, but I'm going to hold back my deciding of it, and I'm going to allow you to choose. Like, God is God, right? I mean, he can make that decision if he wants. He can hold it apart. So he doesn't force us, and he allows us, and yet he knows the future. So there's some things about God He's much higher than us. We just have to accept. I don't understand how he can know the future and not control my free choice. But he says he gives me free choice. Okay, I accept it. I see evidence of it in the Bible. He gave them a tree. That tree stand as a landmark, planted firmly. God gave Adam and Eve the free choice to choose to serve him. Praise God, we have a free choice today too. But of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There was clear consequences. God said that they would what? They would what? They would surely die. Okay. All right. He said that. All right. They didn't know what dying is. They had never experienced it or seen it. Okay. Now we move to Genesis chapter three, the very first verse where we were just a minute ago. We have this serpent that was more crafty. King James says subtle than any other creature. Of the field that the Lord had made, I I would imagine the serpent was pretty impressive to look at. I don't like snakes myself, but uh, um, and he said to the woman. Now, before we read that, he said to the woman three sentences, three sentences. Those three sentences have changed the course of this world. Be careful what little bit you accept. As we look here, we're going to see one of them is just a question. One of them is a statement. And one of them is true. Let's look at them. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say? He was calling into question what God said. Anytime there's someone that calls into question this word... They're following in his footsteps. God's word has authority in our life. Did God actually say? Now, the reason why he's asking this instead of telling it, it's because he wants her to begin thinking about, hmm, was God reasonable in what he said? Like, was it fair of him to say that? And he calls into the question the character of God. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but... God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? No, that's not what God said. He said, you're not to eat from it. He didn't say anything about touching it. She added to what he said. You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, the serpent picked up on that, and he said something here. You will not die. Now, is that true? I mean, Eve is dead. I mean, she's no longer here. I mean, he he lied to her. The father of lies lied. You will not die. So he's saying that what God says will happen doesn't actually happen. You really can't trust him. He puts a little seed of doubt in with this sentence. Just challenging God to the hilt, saying you can't really trust him. I hit the wrong button. That happens. Okay, there we go. Uh, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I would submit to you that this is true, that after they ate of it, their eyes were opened, and they did understand good and evil. This is true. But he's calling into question God's care for them. If God really cared for you, He'd let you. He's holding back from you something that, honestly, I would let you have. Because it's what you really need. He was trying to slip himself in as the one who could really provide for their needs. And shove God out of the picture. And as though he was the one that really, honestly cared for them. For God knows that. If you just listen to me, you'll have a better life. He was really presenting something striking. Now it's interesting, after they ate the fruit, God confronts Adam and Eve. And Adam responds, not out of I'm really sorry, he points the blame somewhere. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate. What kind of a cop out is that? Who's he really blaming here? God, you're to blame. All right, so Satan had Succeeded in his objective. His objective was through three sentences to undermine their belief in God and to blame him for their predicament. And that happens today. As we look around the world, we see this world is a mess. And God gets blamed for this despicable world. But I would ask, who's really to blame? So we come to a juncture, a crossroad. Satan projected that life would be better for them if they simply followed his suggestions. That that they would reach a higher plane and life would be far happier. God said that his ways are best, best and that you would surely die if you ate the fruit. So we see Genesis 4 verse 8, the very next chapter. And it came to pass when they were in the field that one of her sons, Cain, rose up against Abel, her other son, his brother, and killed him. The fruit of disobeying God is murder. When when Satan's way is really followed to its end result, you get what we have in this world. You get pain and suffering and sorrow. But all is not lost. We're told in Genesis 3, verse 15, God, God gave this little window of hope He said, I will cause hostility. He's speaking to the snake, serpent, Satan. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he says how he's going to do this. He will strike your head, referring to the offspring of the woman. Now, if you study deeper in the Bible, you'll know that that offspring is Jesus. Jesus is going to strike the head of the serpent. Now, if you want to kill a snake, do you step in the middle of it? Do you step on his tail? Now, you go for the head, right? And even then, be very careful. Strike your head. Um, Jesus will have success in the war against the serpent. He will win. He will crush the serpent's head. And it says that you will strike his heel. Now, Jesus was wounded in the house of his friends. But he rose from that tomb. Hallelujah. All right, we went through that. So John 1.29 picks up on this idea of the one in the beginning that is going to strike the head of the serpent, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is described as this Lamb that redeems mankind. Revelation 13, verse 8 says that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Did Jesus die at the Garden of Eden? No. But my understanding of this text is that he committed himself at that time to die. Jesus said, Adam and Eve, I love them more than life itself. I'm willing to take their place. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The path that was opened before Adam and Eve was one they thought was going to be glorious, but resulted in the world we see today. Are you happy with this world? Why are not you really happy. I mean, if you live a good long life, 90, 100, As you get older, it gets harder to move around. Like at my age, 42, when I get down on the ground, it hurts to get up. I never felt that way when I was younger. It's not as enjoyable as it used to be. Um, When you fall over, it hurts way more than it did when you were a little one, you know? I'm not happy with this world. I want something better. Jesus came to die in our place, praise God. But he came to do something else as well. We're taught in Matthew 11:27, 27. Jesus says, no one knows the Father except me, the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses, he will reveal him. Jesus came to reveal God's character. Now, Satan had made an accusation against God. He had said that God, God wasn't fair. He was holding back. But Jesus came to really reveal the character of God. Now, I have a question for you. God could have easily wiped Satan out. Right? I mean, he he was lying against his throne. There was war in heaven. God could have easily just wiped him out right then. But he did it. He allowed him to continue to exist and to continue to lie because he gives his entire universe free choice. These accusations are raised against God's character. God isn't fair. I, I, Lucifer, deserve to be part of his throne. And then he gets kicked out of heaven. He says, God is really unfair, and all these angels follow him. And then he comes to this earth, and Adam and Eve, they also believe it. (coughs) They, They blame God for their condition. If God was simply to wipe Lucifer out, the question might still linger in their mind. Maybe Lucifer was right. Maybe God isn't really fair. And perhaps there would another Lucifer arise in one being or another. And the rebellion would continue. So God has allowed this experiment to happen on earth so that we can decide whose side we want to be on. We can see, is this really what I want? Or is God's way the best? Well, Jesus came to reveal God's character. He came to set it straight once and for all. Is God selfish? Hmm. You know this text John 3:16 sets it straight for God so loved the world that he gave God so loved that's his character that's who he is because of his character he gave Satan took his his focus was inward focus but God gave and he gave the best gift heaven had to offer like God the inventory of heaven he looked at him and was like there's nothing better I can give I'll give my son. God didn't hold back. God gave everything we need and more. That whoever believes in him, that whoever believes in him. This is a problem some religionists have. They say, well, God determines everything. You know, I mean, he knows who's going to accept him and he knows who's not. And he's already determined who's going to be in heaven and who's not. This text stands as a Foundation, just like the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it stands as a foundation that God gives us free choice. Whoever, whoever, who wants to be one of those whoevers? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Satan took away life, but God gives it. Praise God. For God so loved the world. This was a prison for Darlene. Fifth. days her pulse was weakly beating she's wondering is anyone going to know that I'm here the 15th day five days after they stopped looking someone climbs over the top of this and she heard rocks tumbling and she called out for help and praise God they heard and they climbed down hello hello Yes, I'm here. Who is it? Darlene. Do you know have any family? Yes, and so she was able to give them her phone number. Um, I have it. I have a short video clip of like 30 seconds. Would you like to see just as they pull her out of this hole? Would you like to see that? Yeah? Okay. All right. You ready? <laughs> that was the moment she was rescued like everyone was cheering and rejoicing she's alive this is her a few years later it's kind of hard to see in that picture was it worth it Praise God, it was worth it. She experienced horror, doubts, wondering does anyone care? And when she felt those hands pull her out of that pit, when she saw light, when she felt warm, caring hands, she felt love. We live in a dark world, it's disappointing. It's bitter, it's painful. It's not as God designed it to be. Do you know why he's allowed it to continue? Because he has placed a path before us. A choice. He wants you to know his true character. He is a God of love. He wants to redeem you from this world. He's got something better in store. And this picture is beautiful. All these rescuers brought her out. But Jesus climbed down in that hole and took her place. He paid our price. We're told in Deuteronomy, I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live. Do you want life? It's to be found in Jesus Christ, whosoever will. He paid the ultimate price. He's not to blame for the wickedness we see in this world. What we see around us is evidence of a world that has rejected God. But this is what Jesus is doing now. He's praying for you to make a choice. Do you want to choose life? If you want to choose life, I would invite you to stand with me. Stand. We're going to stand before the God of the universe and say, I want life. I see the character of God revealed on the cross. I see the wickedness, the pain, the sorrow around me is not your fault. But it causes me to want something better. Praise God. It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we have contemplated a serious subject, one with eternal consequences, we recognize there is a path before us. Lord, we don't want the path of death. We want the path of life, life to be found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to be pulled out of this pit and taken to your glorious mansions above. Lord, thank you for the word of God that helps us to see clearly the character of God that we might have hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.